Hello, everyone, ladies and gentlemen.、Um, welcome to the LSE for this evening's event. My name is Catherine Xiang. I'm the head of East Asian Languages at the London School of Economics and Political Science. So it is a great pleasure for me to welcome Ryan Pyle. Come back to LSE today. Ryan spoke at LSE in 2011 and 2013. The sad news is I missed them both, but the good news is I can be here, enjoy the session, and also chair the session for him. So, just a little bit about Ryan for the people who haven't known him. In 2001, Ryan traveled to China on an exploring mission, and in 2002, he moved to China permanently. <coughs> In 2004, he became a regular contributor to New York Times, and in 2009, he was listed by PDN Magazine as one of the 30 emerging photographers in the world. In 2010, Ryan began working full time on television and documentary film production, and has produced and presented several large multi-episode television series for major broadcasters in USA, Canada, UK. China, Asia, and Central Europe. Today, Ryan will be discussing his time spent exploring and photographing West China's most sacred mountain in an effort to better understand those sacred Tibetan religions, which include remote provinces in Qing,、uh, Qinghai, Tibet, Sichuan, and Yunnan. So, for those Twitter users. In the audience, the hashtag for today's event is #LSEChina. I would ask you please to keep your mobile on silence, and this event is recorded, so hopefully will be made available as podcast, subject to technical difficulties. And as usual, after the lecture, there will be chance for you to put your questions to Ryan. And but for now, will you please join me and welcome to deliver his lecture. Thank you very much for all coming out. Can everyone hear me? Okay. I have a small microphone on my lapel, but so far the technical difficulties、uh, are at bay. They'll probably pop up a little bit later. So thank you all for coming out、uh, tonight. I'm going to talk about something that I did、uh, that my mother is still really upset about, and I spent four months trekking in the mountains of Tibet, and、uh, it's called extreme treks. And I really went out there as a photographer. And also made a television show about it. And what I'll do is I'll walk you through why I did that trip, where exactly I went, what it looked like, obviously because I took a lot of pictures during the journey. And then、um, hopefully we'll have at least 30 minutes for Q and A at the end. So let's begin. So who am I?、Uh, I had a great introduction earlier, but I, I was born and raised in Toronto, Canada. And、uh, graduated from the University of Toronto in 2001, and it's really quite funny. In in 1999, I、uh, really wanted to have my Fridays off of off of class at the University of Toronto. I, I really needed that Friday off. And if there's any students in the audience, you know what I mean. And I needed to take a class on Thursday at 2 p.m. And it didn't matter what class it was. And it ended up being Introduction to Chinese History and Politics. And that bloody class changed my life. Uh, it was a completely random pick 
but I took that class in my second year. I took another class about China in my third year. I took another two more classes about China in my fourth year. And then when I graduated, I moved to China. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I loved storytelling. And I picked up a camera and uh, started taking pictures. And eventually kind of whittled my way in with the New York Times and spent about seven or eight years working with them on a weekly basis covering China's incredible rise. Uh, also branched out and worked with people like Time Magazine, Newsweek, and Fortune. I was named one of the 30 emerging photographers in the world, which is really funny because in 2009, that's also when the publishing industry collapsed. So it's like, hey, you've done some nice things, and by the way, there's no more magazines. Um, which was an incredibly challenging moment for me because I love storytelling, and all of a sudden, my platform for storytelling was gone. You know, if, you, if you've seen a Newsweek or a Fortune or a Time, they're about four pages thick. Everything is online now, and, and, and making a career as a photographer is quite challenging. But I really love storytelling. I wanted to tell bigger and more complex stories, so I moved into television, where, uh, where I've been since really 2009. And now I'm a full-time television producer and presenter, but I still also take a lot of pictures. And I work for Travel Channel uh, and Discovery Channel and outside television in the USA. And uh, I make two main series. One is called Tough Rides. Some of you might have seen that on Travel Channel here in the UK, where I ride motorcycles around countries, which is great fun. Uh, and then uh, Extreme Treks, of which this is the first series. Here's a little trailer to the show. This is this absence, the kind of nature that exists around me at this time, is the exact reason why we wanted to go out and visit these four sacred mountains in Western China. Mother Nature will kill you. I gotta get back to 
trailer about the show and from what you can probably tell already this is one of the most beautiful places in the world and one of the reasons why I wanted to make the show was because I live in a big city Shanghai 25 million people all screaming and fighting to increase their standard of living as the rest of everyone in China is trying to do and and I found myself in my early days of living in, in Shanghai in 2003, 2004, 2005, constantly escaping to the mountains uh, to get out of the city to avoid the heat and to just reconnect a little bit with nature because there's no green space in Shanghai. We're, we're not blessed uh, with some of the parks that we have here in London. So I really enjoyed escaping. And then as I started escaping to the mountains, I started really learning more about what they mean to the local people. And where are these mountains? Well, this is a very unpolitically correct map of Tibet. And uh, in northern Tibet, that's called Amdo province. And uh, in eastern Tibet, that's called Kham. And these are kind of Tibetan provinces. And then there's Tibet proper, which is more in the western region. And Mount Kailash is in the far west, near the border with Nepal. And <clears throat> Karwakarpo is another mountain in northern Yunnan on the border with Tibet and Burma. And in Kham, or Sichuan province, that's where Amni, uh, sorry, that's where Minyakonka is, also known as Gongashan. And then in Amdo province, uh, that's where Amni Mei Chen is, also known as Qinghai province. So one is in the east, one is in the west, one is in the north, and one is kind of in the south. And Tibetan people make these pilgrimages, you know, sometimes every year, sometimes every few years, and. And when, when you're visiting a sacred mountain, you would never climb to the top of a sacred mountain. That's completely sacrilegious. Uh, the top of the mountain is for the gods. So what the Tibetan people do to show respect is to trek around the mountain or to make a pilgrimage around the base of the mountain. And of course, the peak of the mountain can be, you know, 7,000 meters above sea level, 25,000 feet. And to trek around it can take you up to 20,000 feet. So it's quite an arduous journey. But through that journey, they kind of cleanse their soul, they cleanse their sins. And that's very much what they believe in. And it's good karma, and that's why they do it. And, and as I mentioned in the show, I'm, you know, I'm pretty okay with my sins. I didn't necessarily go out and spend four months trekking in Tibet hoping to cleanse my soul. Uh, so if that comes up later, just remember that. So, my first visit to Tibet was actually in 2001, 
And it was my first initiation with the Bon religion, and the Bon religion predates Tibetan Buddhism. So before Buddhism came from India, the Tibetan people believed in Bon religion, and Bon religion had a very close identification with nature. They worshipped the wind, they worshipped the water, they worshipped the soil. These things were what was important to them. And then as Buddhism came from India, the Tibetan Buddhism changed, but also adopted many of the principles in the Bon religion. And that's why Tibetan Buddhists today still explore these sacred mountains. It has nothing to do with Buddhism. It has actually their Bon past. And, uh, and of course, they believe, even today, that the natural landscapes in the mountains are indeed holy deities. In 2006, I made my first trekking adventure to Minyakonka in Sichuan province as a photographer, as a still photographer, uh, with the hope of publishing the story in a Western magazine. I think it ended up in Travel and Leisure. But right away I was hooked. These mountains were incredible. And I thought, and it took me a good uh, seven years to figure out how I could share these mountains with more people because I had become just in love uh, with trekking with local Tibetan pilgrims around these very beautiful places. So in 2016 we began filming and I did all the mountains back to back to back to back over a four month stretch. And uh, because I really wanted to learn about these amazing places and I thought like if I did one one year and one the next year and one the next year, I would never finish them. So I just did them all in a row. So the first mountain I'm gonna talk about today is Minyakonka. It's located in Sichuan province. The journey around on the trail uh, was about 11 days and it was about 120 kilometers. And I did this in July. Now anyone who's ever done any kind of extreme trekking in the Tibetan region would know that July is not the right month to go trekking in the mountains because it just rains on you all the time. But if you want to do all four mountains in one year, you're going to end up uh, not being in the best season. So this is kind of the journey uh, on the Minyakonka Trail. And you start in a small village near Kanding called Lao Lin, and you head uh, through a remote valley. Obviously, in every single case, none of these mountains are near a road. None of these mountains, you know, the trails or the treks around these mountains, they don't necessarily incorporate villages. Uh, you don't have mobile phone access. You have to carry all your own food, uh, you know, your own medical supplies if those are needed. So you're really kind of out there and you're very remote. And later I'll show you some pictures just about how we executed some of that. So we went from in the northern part through Lao Yulin and then all the way down here to the Gonga Monastery at the foot of Minyakonka, which is down here, and then out towards Yulongshi. And our ending place was down here in the south. So that's the start in Lao Yulin. That was the guest house we stayed at. A uh, very nice man named Doji and his uh, young granddaughter was running around in the fields. It's amazing how much construction is going on in Tibet and how people's uh, living standards are improving. And the main reason is the grassworm, uh, where a lot of people are, are picking grassworms in the off-season. And it's actually an aphrodisiac uh, medicine mainly sold in Hong Kong, Taiwan and Japan. And the Tibetan people are picking them and then dealing uh, with Chinese middlemen in order to get them out. And People are making hundreds of thousands of RMB, uh, tens of thousands of, of, of British pounds uh, each year. And there's a lot of construction going on in this region specifically. And that's me and my Tibetan family. That was uh, who we stayed with. That was Doji's 
uh, family, absolutely lovely. And you can see at the beginning of every trek, you've got a smile, and you don't look too, too roughed up. But things always get worse. Uh, these are some of the people we met along the way. They're not true nomads. A lot of people always ask you, oh, did you see people who just are pure nomads? No, most people in Tibet these days are seasonal nomads. So most of these people who I met along all of these treks uh, usually have a fixed home somewhere. And during the summer months, they bring their uh, yaks or their goats or their sheep up to the higher lands to feed on the new grass. And then when winter comes, they'll drop back down. And this is one lady, and she actually invited us into her home for tea. And this would be one of those temporary nomad tents. And you can see she's, she just uses yak dung um, to boil water and make tea. And she has all her supplies uh, behind her. And they'll stay up there for three or four months at a time during the summer months. And that's kind of what the trail looks like. Everywhere they have these little stupas or small little rock formations that they put along the path just to let you know you're going in the right direction. Because uh, you can imagine taking a wrong turn, walking for eight hours up the wrong mountain and... Uh, that would be painful because there's not really a map. Uh, there's a lot of yaks along the way. Yaks obviously like to, like to live up above 3,000 meters above sea level. So anytime you see a yak, you kind of know where you are. And this region is full of yak nomads and yak herders. Yaks are actually very docile when they're in a group. If you come across a yak that is a loner, or, uh, or out on its own, uh, they can actually charge you, and that happened to us, not on this trip, but in Namdi Mei Chen, and it, and it rammed one of our donkeys, which is, uh, which is scary. There's me in the rain. Um, these are some of the guys that we work with along the way. So, first question is, hey Ryan, you did these four sacred mountains around China. That must have been really tough. Did you carry all your own stuff? Absolutely not. It's impossible. You got HD cameras, you got hard drives, you got batteries, you got food, you got medical supplies, you've got so much stuff. I don't know why we had so much stuff. We had so much stuff. So one of the real enjoyments of this trip was I grew up reading Joseph Rock and Kingdon Ward, two great explorers, botanists, environmentalists, scientists from the 19, you know, 1890s to 1920s, 1930s. And they wrote about Sichuan and Yunnan, and they explored the region extensively. Uh, Joseph Rock wrote for National Geographic, Kingdon Ward was a Brit, uh, and did unbelievable work. And, and in reading those books, it romanticizes this part of the world and caravan travel. So of course I'm gonna hire four yaks and put all my stuff on the yaks and, and, and find a couple Tibetan guys to come with us and we'll make a big kind of great adventure out of it. And each mountain uh, called for its own animals and its own kind of guides and porters and things like this. And, and that left us to just walk along the route, which actually proved to be quite challenging enough. Uh, but it was great because that's where a lot of the cultural interaction comes from. If I had gone out and done these mountains on my own with my own backpack, uh, I think I would have missed out on quite a bit. And we wouldn't have been able to film it. Uh, again, some of the scenery on the way through. These are my own images that I took along the way. And these are where you get to spend the night. It, it is beautiful. This is about 4,500 meters um, above sea level, plenty high, so that you get altitude sickness and you won't be able to sleep at night. And just behind me is the Bu Chu Pass, 
which is about 4,900 meters. So you're sleeping here in this beautiful river valley and you're thinking to yourself, man, I hope I get a good night's sleep because tomorrow I'm going to have to ascend about 900 uh, meters straight up the Butru Pass, which was quite challenging. But it was great. I don't know if you can see out in the distance, there's a lot of yak. And that's actually uphill a little bit because the river's coming down towards me. And at nighttime, those yak actually came back down to where our tent was. And yak are huge. They're the size of SUVs. And uh, they love sniffing around your tent looking for food and stuff like that. So at 3 o'clock in the morning, you've got yaks bumping into your tent, uh, sniffing around, and you're just praying to God uh, one doesn't, you know, knock your tent over or decide to wrestle with another yak right next to you. And the great thing about some of these routes are is that they are established. Tibetan people do these journeys. They follow these same pilgrimage paths. So sometimes you have little bridges, if you can call that a bridge. Um, that's kind of, that lets you know which way to go. Uh, follow the little sticks that cross uh, the freezing cold rivers. Or, or that would be the trail. And this is also on the way to Minyakonka in Sichuan province. And how peaceful is it? Days and days of just walking on nothing but that. You know, we live in a distracted era, right? Everyone here has a mobile phone, it's probably on silent, but they're just waiting for it to vibrate. Imagine, you know, 12 days without your phone. It was absolutely fantastic. Uh, as we moved up the Buchu Pass, we got up to about 4,008, 4,900 meters. You can see the difference. There's no grass in this picture. Grass is gone. Grass is a thing of the past. You get way up into the alpine reaches. And it kind of looks like the moon. And it's beautiful. And it's really tough, actually, as well. This is where things start to get difficult. And when I say difficult, it's not alpine climbing, Right? This isn't climbing Everest. Everest is dangerous. People die all the time. There's earthquakes, avalanches, things fall. Um, you're up sometimes twice as high as this, or at least a third higher than this. But what these, what these journeys do is they're long. They're hundreds of kilometers long, maybe 100 kilometers, maybe 200 kilometers. And they test you in different ways because you're constantly going from 4,000 meters to 5,000 meters, and then back down to 4,000 meters, and then back down to 5,000 meters. And this kind of is where the wear and tear comes into it, and this is where you're supposed to earn your good karma. And actually, Mount Everest is a Tibetan sacred mountain, and, uh, which is definitely a no-no for climbing, but people do it anyways because it's the tallest one in the world. Interesting though, Mount Kailash, which I'll, which I'll go, I'll flip to next, is a Tibetan holy sacred mountain, and it's never been summited because uh, no one wants to be the first person uh, to break the hearts of the Tibetan people. Another shot from the Buchu Pass of 4,900 meters, incredibly windy, over a barren landscape. Looking down onto the other side, this is the Moshi Valley. And uh, this is the descent. And for anyone who's done any trekking or climbing or anything like that, you'll always know that going down is much harder than going up. And the downhills are absolutely painful on the knees and the hips and all the things as you get older. And I'm getting older, so... It's uh, ever more challenging going down into these river valleys. But that's what they look like once you get down. And there's the trail through beautiful low shrubs. And here you can see the path is on the right side, your right side, uh, just overlooking the river. And this water, by the way, you, you not only bathe in it at night after a long day of trekking, but you drink from it. There's no pollutants. 
we're well beyond, by this stage in the journey, we're well beyond where any yaks would graze. And uh, this is stuff that you can just scoop right out of the river and drink it, which is a rare thing in China. Uh, so that's good news also. And then, uh, as we kind of come out of the high plateau, back into the grasslands, we went through this forest that was kind of enchanting, quite beautiful. And we're moving towards the Gonga Monastery. And there has been a monastery in this location, at the foot of Minyakonka, or Gongashan, which is, this, which is the huge 7,500 meter peak just behind it, the Tibetan Holy Mountain. There's been a monastery here for about 350 years. And this picture I actually took in 2006. And when I went back in 2013, ah, they put a tin roof on it. <laughs> you can't do that. That is just sacrilegious. But, uh, but anyways, it was, I mean, those, that rooftop was old. I mean, that's an old trail. But I guess they're much happier now. But, you know, in 2006, when I stayed at the, at the Gonga Monastery, um, you know, the, it rains a lot in this part of the world uh, in the summertime. And, you know, on that roof, when the rain hits, it absorbs and you sleep really well. This is loud. I mean, I was up all night. It was raining and thunderstorms and it was craziness. Like a, it's like being caught in a war zone. <laughs> but, um, and this is the inner courtyard. Most Tibetan monasteries are, are kind of square uh, in many cases, and they have an inner courtyard. So this is one monk who is collecting some water inside the courtyard, and that's what it looked like. Uh, the first floor would be a cooking area and a storage area if they had any animals or where they would store their food. Uh, the upper deck, the second floor would, would be their... Um, one would be a praying area uh, in the monastery, and then other would be their personal quarters. And then they have a few rooms for people like me uh, who show up exhausted, dehydrated, uh, where we can spend the night. So we, we spent two nights here at the Gonga Monastery with the monks. And <clears throat> had a chance to kind of chat with them a little bit. So for six months a year, the monks at this monastery are totally cut off from civilization because of the snow. So the snow would come into this region and make it impossible. But in the summertime, there's another sister monastery that, that they exchange monks with. Um, and it's about a three-day walk away. And they'll rotate every six or eight weeks. You know, some monks will go down, some monks will come up. But the guys that do the winter are the really hardcore guys, where they're up here for six months by themselves. And this is what they're doing all the time. They're just reading, studying, chanting, memorizing. And this is, uh, this is really their, what they've signed up for. Here again, this is one of the main prayer halls where the monks will do some quite aggressive chanting and praying. And here you can see, he uses the only window in the room behind him to illuminate the prayers. And uh, in his right hand, he has this stick and he bangs it on a small drum that's just out of view. And he'll, uh, he'll chant there for kind of two or three hours at a time. And it's also a great way to keep the body warm. Uh, you can see that by the, at the beginning of it, he's quite cold and he's wrapped in his second, uh, in his bigger jacket. And then as he chants and begins to warm up, he sheds layers and by the end of it, he's completely sweating. It's amazing how much of a physical experience this is. And of course, as I got to stay with them, I got to photograph them a little more. And then finally, Minya Konka showed herself. So I had been here in 2006. 
and I didn't see the mountain. It was covered in, covered in clouds, which is, which is what it is almost all summer, every summer. So we had arrived in July at the monastery, and of course the monks would say, why would you guys come in July? You're never going to see Minyukonka. You're never going to see the mountain. And of course you can't call beforehand and be like, how's the weather? Right? You just walk like six days and then you end up at the monastery like, have you guys seen the mountain recently? Never? Okay. But then we woke up at 5 a.m. and we had a chance to actually see the mountain. And apparently doing prayers, what is it, doing prayers, doing um, the prayers in front of Minyakonka when you can actually see Minyakonka is worth like a hundred years of doing prayers in your home. So a lot of people would make the pilgrimage just so they can actually see that in the early morning. And of course, that's another view of it, looking through some of the prayer flags that are available uh, on the site near the monastery. And then, once you visit the monastery, you have to get out, you have to get back to civilization. And this is the journey up the Yulong Shri Pass. And you can see here, it's quite early in the morning. The clouds always start low. And as the sun warms up the earth, the clouds rise up. And then we had started so early in the morning, almost in the dark, uh, that we managed to get to quite a high altitude before the clouds had moved up. And it was just like walking on a sea of white clouds. And you can see all the white peaks, snow-capped peaks around us. And then it turned into a hailstorm, which was not happy, at 4,000... What's the Yulong Shi Pass? 4,300 meters above sea level. Got cold in a hurry. And then it became sunny again within about five minutes, and I snapped that picture right at the top of the high pass. So that was really the journey around Minyakonka. Um, absolutely beautiful. Again, it took about 10 or 11 days, including two days at the monastery. Chance to photograph, chance to connect with monks, chance to explore this great sacred mountain. And any Tibetan person who lives in Sichuan or, or in Kham region would make the Minyakonka trek at some stage in their lives. Uh, it's one of the things to do. Everyone, everyone really must do their local sacred mountain, uh, do the pilgrimage, do the Kora around their uh, uh, local sacred mountain. And then, of course, if you have the money or you have the time, you start to branch out and do other ones. And then the, other, the next closest one is Amnime Chen, which is in Amdo province, and it's in the northern part of, uh, of Tibet. And the funny thing is, is you'll look at this map and you won't see any relief lines because it's flat. This is the Qinghai grasslands. The mountains are quite high, 5,600, 5,000, 6,000 meters above sea level, but the grassland plateau is about 4,500 meters above sea level, and it was the flattest mountain trek I've ever been on. And it was basically just struggling on a grassland um, for days on end. And those are the gates to Amni Chen. And this is the road which will take you to Sha Dao Wu, which is the starting point for the Amni Chen trek. And Sha Dao Wu is 3,700 meters above sea level. And you can see how moody the sky is on this particular day. And this man was also going to Sha Dao Wu, but he was going. Uh, on his own two feet and, and eventually going to make a pilgrimage. Whereas we were in, uh, we were in a car to Shadawu and then from Shadawu we began walking our journey. I mean, imagine just being in a car in the middle of the Qinghai province. You've been in a car for like 10 hours, you're exhausted, 
and then your driver's like, oh, here's someone. And you're like 100 kilometers away from the nearest town or village. And you've got some guy walking along the side of the road because it's an established trail, because it's an established path, and because people have been doing this for hundreds of years, uh, walking these trails, walking these paths, visiting Amni Mei Chen. And it's beautiful. And you can see the difference between Qinghai province and Sichuan province. Sichuan province has high mountains, low river valleys. That's tough trekking, because you're always going up and down, up and down. But Qinghai, you can see here, it's much flatter. It's uh, much less, uh, the valleys are much less lower, the peaks are much less higher, and the journey is very flat, but it has its own struggles and difficulties. And that is the one street town of Shaodawu, which was not memorable. But you can see the beautiful green, you know, the green mountains and stuff around it. This was August, and it was hot, uh, and it was, it was ruthlessly hot. Not a cloud in the sky, but just beautiful and green in every way, shape, and form. And that's, uh, that's an example of kind of the river valleys that we've worked our way up on the way to Amni Mei Chen. And that is Amni Mei Chen. And when we walked up there, we, we walked up through the river valley. Prayer flags on the start of the journey. And then <clears throat> when we went to Minyakonko, which was the first mountain, we really didn't see a lot of people while we were making the trek. But in Amni Mei Chen, we did start to see a few people. And you can imagine how hard it is just to walk the Quora or walk the pilgrimage around the mountain. And then, of course, you find people who are much tougher than you and much more committed to cleansing their souls. So people who do a pilgrimage around the mountain, they do a prostration. They'll start with their hands in a, in a kind of traditional prayer form. And then they'll go down to their knees, or they'll, sorry, they'll go up, they'll come down, they'll go down, they'll touch their head to the forehead, or touch their forehead to the ground, arms extended, and then they'll get up, take one step, and do it again. And they will do hundreds of kilometers around some of these sacred mountains uh, in that way. These people would be doing the Kora around Amni Mei Chen for easily 20 to 30 days to do the same distance that I did in eight, eight days, probably. That also tells you I'm very slow because they're basically crawling and it only takes them three times longer than me, but I was really suffering from altitude sickness and, and things got really tough. But of course, when you have a chance to see this, you know, you, you, you shoot it, um, you talk with the people, you ask them where they're from. They're from a, a nearby region and had come to do the Kora and it was absolutely uh, beautiful to kind of be walking with them this is the path here on the right side, walking up the river valley. Hours and hours each day spent walking on this kind of semi-useful trail. This was the first high pass, about 4,400 meters above sea level. And that's actually the back side of Amni Mei Chen. Uh, that's not the front side where you can actually see the mountain. Amni Mei Chen is very confusing. Amni Mei Chen is the name of both a mountain range and a mountain. And this is the back side of the Amni Mei Chen range. But Amni Mei Chen, the holy mountain, is actually on the front side of the range, which we'll see a little bit later. But this first high pass was absolutely beautiful uh, to visit and connect with. And that's an example of all the prayer flags that all of the trekkers and the pilgrimage, uh, people who have done the pilgrimage, have all carried on their backs up to this one high pass uh, to 
place down there. You can see people have been doing it for decades, if not hundreds of years, and some of these prayer flags were so dense you couldn't even really walk through them. That's an example of what we kind of looked like when we were camping along the journey. Again, no towns, no mobile phone access, no nothing. Early morning, on a little pass with prayer flags in the sunlight. Again, here the path gets a little bit more challenging as we're walking along the side of a cliff with the river down on the left. And this is finally Amni Mechen, this central mountain here in the middle. That is the actual holy mountain where people travel from, you know, miles and miles away to come and see. And those are the perfect people will put there to pray in front of Amni Mechen. And you can see how kind of flat the mountains are. There's nothing overly, overly high, but it's funny. Um, when Joseph, when Joseph Rock first visited Amni Mechen, he thought it was the highest mountain in the world. It wasn't, was a bit off there. He also thought Minyakonka was the highest mountain in the world when he first visited. He basically thought every mountain in the world was the highest mountain. I found the tallest mountain in the world. That was the way things were in the 20s. Um, but then once they had a better look at it, they figured it wasn't. And of course, you know, as prayer offerings at the, at the place where you pray in front of Amni Mechen, you have these beautiful mani stones where people will, will carve out prayers and, and leave them. And you can imagine how heavy some of these uh, to carry, you know, tens of kilometers uh, from Shabbat and leave them here in front of Amni Mechen as a prayer offering. And the artistry and the, and the language, and the, it's absolutely stunning. And I don't read Tibetan. Someone asked me that a few months ago when I was chatting about this as well. Don't read Tibetan. Can't speak Tibetan. And I'll tell you a little bit more about how I got around um, with that. There's a shot of me dying. And again, you can see just how kind of flat the landscape is, but entirely above 4,500 meters. And not a lot of clouds in the sky, so you get a lot of sun damage. So you get altitude sickness from two main things. One is um, direct sunlight, which will melt your brain, and the other is uh, dehydration. So altitude sickness, you know, is really dangerous, people die. It's not a joke, but, uh, but if you're dehydrated or you're taking a lot of direct sun, that stuff will actually happen a lot faster. And here in Anime Chen, you get, you get both of those in a bad way. I even had little gloves on my hands, because uh, my hands were exposed and they were just getting cooked from the sunlight. Obviously, the sun is much more intense the higher altitude you are. Oh, there's a shot walking across the front face of Anime Chen, the holy mountain. And that's my team that we worked with in Anime Chen. And we had. Uh, Four yaks and two donkeys. And they were great. They kept us safe. They kept us out of trouble. And you can see all the bags and stuff on them. Bags of rice, bags of bread, um, and then all of our camera equipment and all of our gear along with it. And without these guys, uh, we would never have kind of made it on this journey. And then they are there. So the Tibetan team. Now, one of the guys obviously spoke English uh, and Chinese and Tibetan. And he was kind of the liaison to help us get around each of these mountains, and he was really wonderful. So, not a part of the world you want to go out and just walk around in by yourself. Definitely, it's always good to have local help. And Amni Chen was a beautiful mountain. It led to a lot of really lovely photography as well. So now to Mount Kailash. Mount Kailash is the mountain, the holy mountain of all holy mountains. It is a holy mountain for Bon people. 
who, are stu- who still believe in Bon. It is a holy mountain for Tibetan Buddhists. And it is a holy mountain for the Jainism people, mainly from India. And the Hindu people. Four. Four religions all consider Mount Kailash to be a holy mountain. And it was actually the busiest mountain of all the mountains we visited. There are the most pilgrims that make this trip. Now, you look at the distance, 53 kilometers. Local Tibetan people will do it in one day. No joke. I mean, if they held the Olympics at 5,000 meters above sea level, Tibetan people would win every discipline. No joke. I mean, it's, it's amazing. They will, get, they will wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and they will start walking, and they will finish by dinner. 53 kilometers. And they have their prayer wheels, which are you know, small um, cylindrical uh, wheels that have a prayer inside, and they spin as you rotate them. And the Bon people will go counterclockwise, and the, and the Tibetan Buddhists will go clockwise. And they just walk. And they're just totally in their own zone. 53 kilometers in one day. Completely unbelievable. Made me feel very unfit. We started down in Darchin. And for all of these mountains, we went the Tibetan Buddhist uh, way, which was clockwise. And the Bon people will actually do the journey counterclockwise. And the Hindu people will also do it clockwise. So, as you're doing the journey, if you're seeing someone coming at you like this, you can stop them and ask them if they're Bon, and every time they'll say yes. Which was something that did get a little tiring after a while, but for the first few people I ran into, it was absolutely fantastic. Because I was trying to figure out where they were from. Because not all people who live in Tibet are Buddhists. A lot of people have still held on to their Bon religion. And this is one of the great places in Tibet where you can find them. So we started in Darchin, I went past the monastery, and right past the front face of Mount Kailash, and I'll show you some images from there. And then we went up the Dromla Pass, which was 5,600 meters above sea level, which was the highest pass on any of the sacred mountains. And then came back down around the backside, uh, and then back to Darchim. And you'd think that September might be okay, but obviously, you know, the weather can play uh, any role it wants. But we started in Lhasa, which is the gateway to Mount Kailash, which is in western Tibet. And from Lhasa, we flew all the way to where Mount Kailash is in Ali, which was a two-hour flight. And of course, in, in Lhasa, we have the Motala Palace. We have people getting married everywhere. Can't go wrong with wedding pictures. I love his shoes. Um, and his so they're actually right in front of the Botala Palace. I don't know if you can tell that. It's like the number one wedding photo place uh, location in all of Lhasa, right in front of the Botala. And then here at the Jokan Monastery, which is very much the beating heart of Tibet, the most important religious monastery for Tibetan Buddhists. And you can see all the people prostrating and doing their prayers in the early morning. This is right in the heart of old Lhasa. Early in the morning in Lhasa man making a small pilgrimage on a, two, on, a, on a trek just outside of Lhasa. And then of course you've got on an airplane, and it's a two hour flight to Ali on Tibetan Airways. And we were already feeling you know, quite tough at this point. We're like, yeah, we can fly from Lhasa, which is 3,000 meters above sea level, to Ali, which is 4,500 meters above sea level. And we shouldn't get altitude sickness because we've already done two of these sacred mountains and we're quite tough. Um, but obviously when you hit the ground, you have another thing coming. That's actually Kailash. Right there. You can see how it stands up 
from all of the mountains around it. And if you really look at a map, you'll notice, and this is why Kailash is a holy mountain, that the Brahmaputra, the Ganges, um, the Karnali, and the one that goes into Pakistan, which I should know, the Indus, all originate from Mount Kailash. Without Mount Kailash and its glaciers, the billion and a half people that live in South Asia would not have water. Imagine that. And that is why Mount Kailash is the holiest mountain in all of Asia. That is why people travel from all over South Asia to visit it. And it was amazing um, to be walking around the mountain and exploring it. But before I got to Mount Kailash, I visited Lake Manasarovar, which is one of the highest uh, lakes in the region. And it is, it's actually one of the highest lakes in the world, 4,600 meters above sea level. I think there's a higher, a higher lake in Bolivia, but equally beautiful. And here is a, is a nice mountain a monastery built into the cliff looking over Lake Manasarovar. Anyone been to Lake Manasarovar? One? Did you bathe in the, did you bathe in the water? Yes, that cleanses your sins. You've got to do it. I did it in the show. don't have a picture of it. Really cold. I mean, that's obvious, right? Uh, here's another shot of the lake, uh, looking at it from a different angle. Really, really cool. Uh, and here are some uh, people uh, herding yaks out in front of Mount Kailash. That is Mount Kailash, right there. And you can see, uh, you can see it from kind of all angles. It looks like no other mountain, really, in the world. It's almost like a pyramid in its shape and form. It has a flat flat top on it. Absolutely stunning. There's a closer look at it from another vantage point I took. Small reflection. This is all before we began our trek. As we, as we waited to acclimatize. Because once you start the journey around Mount Kailash, actually Mount Kailash is really dangerous. Um, the entire journey around Kailash, you never go below about 5,000 meters above sea level. The whole time, you're kind of 49 Five three, five six, five one. So you really want to make sure you acclimatize well before you start the journey, because once you start, there's nowhere to go down. So once you get altitude sickness, uh, once you start feeling horrible, you're pretty much stuck with that feeling for 53 kilometers, uh, which might take you four or five days, or it might end you. And when we visited in September, the statistic for that year, January up until September was uh, 76 deaths at Kailash. Uh, so a lot of people do make the journey and don't make it out on the other side. And this is the entry point to Mount Kailash. People put their prayer flags up. And there's actually an amazing festival here during the Tibetan New Year every year uh, in front of Mount Kailash. And this is where we begin our journey. And you can see all the other people. I mean, for the first time, there, were, there was a, a group of Buddhists from America. Of course, there's, you know, Buddhists in America. There was a group of American uh, Buddhists who had come to Mount Kailash, and they'd all been preparing for it for years. There were groups from India, Hindu people from India, who had come uh, to do the trek around Kailash. There were uh, Bond people, but they had started in the other direction. And then there was me uh, making this journey as well. We were kind of not with a group. And you can see just the valley we're in and the size and the scale of the landscape. And this is one of those guys. Just spinning that prayer wheel, 53 kilometers in one day. Shocking. 
is an example of where we camp, kind of at the doorstep of Mount Kailash, on the rocky moraine where the glacier had kind of come back in the summer months, and uh, absolutely stunning. It's pretty cool to be able to sleep in the shadows of Mount Kailash, something a lot of the pilgrims do. And these are two brothers uh, that had come from eastern Tibet on the border of Tibet in Sichuan province. They had traveled um, by bus for almost two weeks uh, to get to Kailash. And their goal was to do it twice in two days. 106 kilometers, two days. And they were thinking about maybe sleeping, maybe not. Um, but we stopped them and had a pretty good chat with them. And they were hilarious. The two of them were just singing and spinning their prayer wheels and they had their walking sticks. Two of the happiest guys you've ever met in your life, and a total inspiration, because at this stage I was also completely dying. <laughs> uh, here's another two people making their way through the landscape again. And that was one morning before we made our way up the um, Dromla Pass, and the Dromla Pass is the high 5,600 meter pass on this journey. And of course, when we woke up that morning, it was a tough one. Um, Kailash, every night, minus 20 degrees Celsius. So you're in your tent, you're in your sleeping bag, can't breathe because of the altitude, and it's freezing cold. So even in a minus 20, minus 25 sleeping bag, um, you're still kind of shivering, tossing, turning. So you don't sleep at night, and then you wake up in the morning, and obviously all you want is a hot coffee, but that'll actually dehydrate you more. So hot water with lemon and honey is the key uh, to these kinds of treks. That will kind of hydrate you, give you a little bit of sugar. Um, but it's not, not always happy in the morning. It's tough to get going at minus 20. Also, in this part of the world in September, it's quite late already. The sun will go down at 4 p.m. The sun will not rise until 10 a.m. You really cannot get out of your tent unless the sun is out or looks like it might be out. So you end up spending a lot of time in your tent reading or just shivering. And that's what you look like when it's time to go. And of course, my guide on this trip, Doji, uh, on the back right, he was stoic. And he was like, you know, up doing his exercises and, you know, getting the cooker ready in the morning like it was nothing. I think just people from the western part of the world just aren't built for this. Aren't, they're just not built for Tibet, or at least I'm not. It was absolutely soul-destroying some mornings of some of these journeys. Here's some of the water coming off one of the glaciers around the trail around Kailash. And this is the trail here. Cuts out and then it comes back, and then you go through that valley over there. And all of this is already above 5,000 meters. Here's an elderly man also making his journey. Um, this guy would have lapped me four times if we were having a race, just kind of enjoying his own pace, going straight up the side of this mountain. And then, of course, it snows on you because on the, the high pass day, the weather never cooperates. And at 5,600 meters above sea level, um, we all got caught in the same snowstorm. And I think the only saving grace for me is that I had decent clothing and decent equipment. Uh, you know, these people, these people had horrible shoes on. They, they, you know, they, they had gloves that were completely unsuitable for this kind of journey. Um, but still they powered on because this was their big journey around Thailand. And this is really how people die, either through altitude sickness or because they freeze to death. And a lot of people making this journey, what they'll do is they'll stop on the side of the trail and kind of huddle up together uh, and sit to try to warm each other. 
and then they'll fall asleep and then freeze to death. And it's in situations like this, at these altitudes, where some of that will happen. And then, of course, you come across these amazing little glacial ponds straight out of the, uh, straight out of the ice glaciers surrounding you. Um, I did meet a couple Russians. I don't know why. There's a lot of Russians in Tibet these days. Uh, after I finished my trek, I met a couple Russians. They were drinking a lot of Jameson at 5,000 meters above sea level. It's also a bad idea. No alcohol or cigarettes at high altitude. That'll dehydrate you even faster. But the Russians didn't care. They were doing both. They were quite excited. They finished Mount Kailash. And they started making fun of me because I didn't go swimming in the 5,600 meter glacial pond next to the high pass, uh, which they have pictures of them doing, obviously. So, uh, if you're going to do Kailash, make sure you swim in that so that you can tell a Russian person you've done it. And uh, that's the picture of me in the snowstorm up at the top of the Dronala Pass as well. Enjoying the journey. Uh, just after we came down from the Dronala Pass, that was where we camped again, snow coming through. And we were back in a place where we could see some nomads, back in a place where there were people around us again, finally. Uh, you can see the Yaka on the other side of the river. And then, of course, Kailash. If there's one kind of turn that you had to personify Mount Kailash, it would just be alive. You know, we were meeting people at every stage in our journey. And here, towards the end of our journey, we came across uh, two sisters making a pilgrimage. And, of course, they're prostrating around Mount Kailash. And here they are again, the same sisters, making their journey. And they've got a plastic sheet, like a tablecloth, wrapped around their waist so when they come down on the ground they stay uh, dry and a little warm and a little bit cleaner. And you can see how sunburned their faces are at this altitude. I mean this is just some unbelievably challenging um, adventure that they're on and all because of their faith which is uh, quite inspiring. And then of course you see some guy carrying a child. and. Uh, He's just bringing his kid along, his like one-year-old kid, two-year-old kid, uh, along on this incredibly dangerous, incredibly excruciating journey around Mount Kailash. And he was saying all these things like, oh, when he gets a little older, he'll be able to tell all his friends that he's already done Mount Kailash. <laughs> Which seems totally reasonable. Totally reasonable. Uh, and this is the, the path on the way out. And the last, uh, the last mountain, because we want to save some time here for Q&A, was Karwa Karpo, which is located on the border of Yunnan and Tibetan province, right near Burma. And this was the longest of all the journeys, 220 kilometers, which we covered in about 14 days. And Karwa Karpo is horrible. Seven high passes. Seven high passes, all above 4,500 meters. So it looks like a heart monitor. You just... You go up 1,500 meters, you come down 1,500 meters. You go up 1,500 meters, you come down 1,500 meters. And it's uh, absolutely ruthless. But the mountain itself is absolutely stunning. So we had a wonderful chance to start uh, down here on the bottom in Yongsta village. And then we worked our way again, clockwise. And actually the border, the border between Yunnan and Tibet is almost right here. Uh, in Tibetan province. And this is the Nujang River here. And this is the Mekong River here. So we trekked from the Mekong River to the Nujang or the Salween River and then back to the Mekong. And of course, 
when you go down to a river, you go down, and then when you go up over high pass, you go up. So the, the mountains uh, in this part of the world were incredibly challenging, but that's Minyakonka, uh, or sorry, that's Karwakarpa in Yunnan. This is the part of the world where they say, where it's termed Shangri-La, and it's because of scenes like this, uh, which are absolutely stunning. It's never been, never been climbed. And these are the lovely women in Yongsta village where we began our journey. And then this is uh, how we begin the journey at a lower altitude. This was about 3,000 meters above sea level. You can see there's a lot of trees and forested areas. And actually we walked through a lot of forests. And this man was actually making the pilgrimage on his own, carrying all of his own supplies. And he thought we were quite silly for having all of our donkeys and stuff like that. And he decided to join us and walk with us for a while. And that is the last tea house on the first day. That was the last bit of uh, comfort we had where we could go in and buy some water and have a little sugar. And that's Doji on your right, who was my guide for this uh, part of the journey. And this was a small nomad tent of a herder. He, he cooked us some warm, warm tea. Um, And, uh, and his buddy was also up there hitting with the yaks. You know, as, as I travel through these regions, you know, it's, I hope it's easy for you to see what is so attractive. Yes, the physical experience of doing these journeys is great, but, and also the photography. I mean, the people, the faces, uh, the, the lives that you come into contact with. They, this, they made so much fun of this guy um, because he has hair like a foreigner. And they always called him, hey, he's the, you know, he had the, uh, the Waigoren uh, Tolfa, like the foreign hair, right? Everyone speaks Chinese here. And they always made fun of him because at some stage of his lineage, um, there was some intermingling going on between someone who was not Tibetan. And he has this great mane uh, of hair. Uh, so he was always getting razzed by the other herders. Um, well, mainly by him, actually. So. <laughs> and he's there just puffing away on his tobacco. And that was, uh, that was us uh, camping just out in front of their little nomad uh, herding village. And this one was in October, uh, which is way too late in the season to be doing a trek like this, really, uh, at these altitudes. September is really the sweet spot, if anyone has, a tr has an interest in going. And there's lots of pigs in the region. The Dokola Pass was our first high pass on this journey. It's about 4,900 meters above sea level. And it's straight up the side of a mountain. And those were our donkeys. That we, uh, that we worked with, and they were carrying a lot of our camera equipment. Again, here, some of our team working their way up. You know, you start walking way down in that valley, and you come up through the trees, endless switchbacks on the dirt trail, and then you get into this open amphitheater. The size and the scale of the landscape around you makes you feel completely puny and insignificant. Which is a beautiful thing in this hypersensitized selfie world that we live in. Again, another kid just killing me on this trek up the mountain. Um, now, to be fair, his dad was carrying him for a good part of it, but the dad was killing me too. These Tibetan people are just off the charts tough and uh, not at all cold at this altitude. You can see this guy's wearing a sweater. You know, I had the gloves and the jacket and the hat and the scarf and and uh, the boots and the whole thing, and I was just freezing cold, and he's just smiling and having a great time. It's, uh, 
Very challenging. Yeah. Uh, didn't expect to see any guns in Tibet, but came across this lovely man and his hunting partner. And this was quite early in the morning. We'd just kind of broken our camp. We'd put everything away. We had our breakfast and we just started walking. We ran into this lovely man. We stopped and chatted for a little while. He's from one of the nearby villages in the Nujang Valley. And we asked him, what's the rifle for? He's like, we're hunting. And I was like, not hunting Canadians, but uh, hunting bears. And I thought, that's kind of scary because I didn't know there were bears in China at all because uh, most of them have already been hunted out for their gallbladders and things like this. But... Uh, but they were hunting bears. And then I was like, I've never seen a bear. Can I really believe you? And he's like, well, sometimes we hunt birds and we shoot birds out of the sky at all. And he's like, but there are bears here. And I kind of didn't believe them until I saw those. And those were uh, two that were held as pets at the next uh, kind of little village that we stopped at on the New Giant Valley. And they had been caught as cubs and raised in a pit. So uh, there are bears in the region and you don't fall down to hang out with them. So, a bit scary. So, and it's great, this guy's, this guy's rifle was like an English-made rifle from the 1920s. And he's like, it doesn't shoot straight. I was like, because it's like 100 years old. <clears throat> uh, that's the New John River. And you can see it's, it's a brown river mainly, but you can see the glacial water coming out of the mountains, mixing with the brown river, um, which is absolutely lovely. Flowing from Tibet through Burma, and then into uh, Southeast Asia. And this is another uh, river that we came across along our way. Just again, the landscapes, the amphitheaters, the nature that exists uh, in these parts of the world is breathtaking, and having that opportunity to photograph it uh, and share it with you tonight is an absolute privilege and an honor. Uh, the bridges are not well made. Uh, that one is actually at a complete slant. And the guys actually managed to get the donkeys across it as well, which was shocking. Um, not safe entirely, big drop. Uh, but everyone else was doing it. And here, uh, we actually did come into a village along the New Jong Valley, and this man had a large prayer wheel. And he invited us to stay in his home with him and his family. And we were drinking tea together. And he was spinning his prayer wheel, sitting next to the river, perfectly silhouetted. 50 millimeter lens, Provia 400 still shooting in film, uh, and it was kind of because of little moments like this that I, I still love uh, some of the photography I get to do. And that's his family, that's his mother, and then his children uh, preparing corn. And that corn's not for them, that's for the animals. <coughs> oh. um, people, that was just outside their village. And then raining with the sunlight out at the same time. Common phenomenon. Uh, older lady collecting uh, vegetables from the garden. And then this is the Shula Pass, which is the final pass on the journey around Carbo Carbo. And in October it had already uh, come to snow and it was quite challenging and quite dangerous at this stage. But uh, absolutely kind of lovely. And knee-high, knee waist-high snow in some of these places on our way down. And that was the team for our journey around Karwa Karpo. And we had a wonderful lady cook, some of you might notice. She wanted to come with us. She'd never uh, done the journey, or she did it last like 10 or 15 years ago. She came with us from Yongstad Village. And of course, she, was, she killed it. Incredibly tough as a walker. So what did I learn about the journey? Four mountains, 
four completely different climatic areas, Sichuan, Qinghai, uh, Yunnan, and Tibet proper. Average altitude between 4,000 and 5,600 meters. And like a London summer, you get four seasons in a day. Uh, bon and Buddhism, completely different. Bon predates Buddhism. Um, and how they've intermingled and mixed over time is really incredible, especially when you're in the more remote parts of Tibet. And of course, when you go out to remote places, when you unplug your cell phone, when you, when you don't stare at a screen for 14 hours a day, you learn a lot about yourself. And uh, doing these trips has a great potential for internal growth. And these mountains not only kind of cleansed my soul, um, but also kind of changed me profoundly. And of course, if you do Kailash 13 times, if there's anyone out here, uh, you'll go straight to heaven. Uh, so I've done it once, so i got 12 more times. So we should lead a group there uh, sometime next summer and try to start working on my next 12. And I make uh, two other, I make, I make two television shows, mainly extreme tracks and tough rides. And this is just one of the speaking engagements I do. And that's really the end of my lecture. So I want to thank you all very much for coming out tonight. So now we have the opportunity to open to the floor for questions from the audience. So if you could tell us your name and the affiliation, that would be great. And we will start from the ground, and then I will move upstairs as well. Please wait for the steward to come to you with the microphone as well. Any questions, please? Hi, um, thanks for your talk. My name is Lucien, and... I'm affiliated with a few things, Open University student being one of them. Um, I'm, interested to learn, I'm interested to learn how you managed the altitude to which you referred frequently, um, what you did in, by way of preparation as well as during the treks. Okay, excellent question. There's no way you can prepare for altitude. Um, every single trek I went on, I had altitude sickness. Uh, and there's no way to prepare for it. And altitude sickness medicine is horrible because it doesn't fix altitude sickness. It masks the symptoms. And if you mask the symptoms of your altitude sickness, then you will continue trekking and behaving in the same way that gave you altitude sickness, and it increases your risk of serious health harm. So my uh, suggestion is for any kind of journey like this is do not take altitude sickness pills understand your body. When you need to stop, you stop. When you need to rest, you rest. You drink a ton of water. You protect your face from the sun. Eyewear is really important. At 5,000 meters above sea level, if it's sunny out, you can burn your retina, and that will obviously increase uh, the effects of altitude sickness and blind you, which are two horrible things. So you just, you just kind of muddle through. And, uh, you know, some people go to Lhasa and go to Mount Kailash, and they feel fine the whole time. And it has nothing to do with your physical fitness. I'm in the gym all the time. Okay. And one of the guys I went with in 2006, he's a chain-smoking alcoholic. And he was so effortless at 5,000 plus, And it drove me insane. I don't drink alcohol. I don't smoke cigarettes. I'm in the gym running all the time like a caged rat. And we get up at 5,003. He's like, come on, man, how you doing? And he's smoking at night in his tent. You never smoke in your tent at night. This is what I'm talking about, right? Smoking in his tent at night. He's like, hey, come on, let's go. You know, he's fine. So it affects everyone 
in a completely different way, and there's no way to know uh, how it'll affect you. But just be ready for it, and I'm, I'm, I'm strongly against altitude sickness medication. Great question. Anyone else? Um, over here? Oh, wait, wait, we'll give you a mic. Hi. It's Karina. I'm a teacher. I, I lived in the Middle East before in a very conservative area. How did the experience change you as a person? The silence, the, uh, the difficulties, you know. How did it change you as a person? Okay, well, how did it change me as a person? That's a great, great question as well. I think I live in the same world that you guys live in, and I live in the same world as my teenage children. I'm distracted all the time. I've got screens everywhere. I've got a phone that vibrates all the time. In our modern age, we don't give ourselves time to think and reflect on who we are, what we want, and where we're going. That's my personal opinion. Some of you might feel the same way. Some of you may think I'm full of uh, crap. But going out on these mountain journeys, doing nothing but walking for 8, 10 hours a day, completely disconnected from the world around you, is such a therapeutic process. And I'm not saying that I had a ton of baggage going into the journey. Um, I, you know, I'm, I, didn't, I don't have any huge problems I'm trying to solve in my life by doing these journeys. But I really felt empowered by setting out to accomplish a goal and then c completing it. And having that time to just think and be alone with your own thoughts is a sense or a way of meditation. It's exactly the same. Now, I tried meditating once in India on one of the shows I did, and I couldn't sit still for more than 20 minutes. I was just freaking out. I was shaking, and it was a horrible experience. But this I can do, you know, walking 8 or 10 hours a day, just being alone with your thoughts. And, and as someone who's creative, I find it such a beautiful process because your mind is just full of ideas because you're not distracted. And, I, you know, I had ideas for other shows. I had ideas for other photography. I had you know, ideas of things I wanted to do with my kids. You know, all these, all these things were kind of pouring out of me, all these creative, um, you know, green shoots, and it was a really beautiful experience. And, uh, and the reason why I wanted to make the show and the reason why I wanted to go out and do this is because I really wanted to share kind of the beauty of these regions with, with people all around the world, but then to also show people, and we get into this more in the show than I did tonight, is, is we really get into how that changes and how it affects me and, uh, and how it really, I believe, kind of improves me as a, as a human being. And if people can learn from that or take a little piece of that home with them uh, after watching the show or, or coming out listening to me tonight, then, then I've shared uh, something that I am passionate about. So, Thank you. Thanks. I think that was, yeah, the lady in red. Um, I just wanted to ask you a, a technical question about how often the, the people who pr um, pr pr uh, prostrate prostrated themselves, yes, mm -hmm. how, how often, how, uh, how many meters between one prostration and the next? Okay, so the really hardcore people will just take one step, prostrate, come up, and then take one more step. And then you'll find some cheaters out there. I don't know how anyone can cheat it. But they'll, they'll prostrate, and then they'll one, two, three, and then they'll go down. So from my experience, it's mainly, I, you know, it's ruthless, ruthlessly difficult in any way, shape, or form. But there are people that will do, in, in my own personal experience, between one and three steps uh, in between their prostrations. And I think the people who do one step 
are a little bit more hardcore because our guides, our guides would mention this every now and then. It's like, that, she's doing one step. Like, our guides would be like, she's, she's quite tough. And the girls at Kailash were doing, uh, were doing one step, and they were incredibly um, motivating. It was, it was inspiring to see them doing that. But it's usually kind of between one and three steps. So what's that, like one meter and maybe three meters? Um, and doing 100 kilometers, which is, uh, which is amazing. Do we have any questions upstairs? Or? Oh, up. No? Oh, there's a gentleman. Up there? Yeah. OK. Why don't we, you want to come? <laughs> just shout, just shout. So hopefully everybody can hear me now better. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to understand how you prepared for the trip, your method of preparation, uh, things that you knew before, things that were slightly unexpected. Um, also from a technical side, so if, for example, you said you know photography and videography was a big part. So did you know how many days you would take uh, to sort of you know circumnavigate um, the mountains and hence memory cards, batteries, laptops, hard drives, that kind of stuff. So just both the technical aspects and and, and just the you know, trip preparation aspects. Right. So these are established trails. I, I didn't discover anything new. If you go on, if you go on a, a search engine and, and start typing in these mountains, you will find maps. You will find information. But not a lot of people really understand how the mountains come together. And that was really why I wanted to package them together as a project uh, and do this. So you can understand a little bit about the distances around the mountains and kind of understand that if you're walking on flat ground, you can probably do about 20 kilometers a day. If you're walking straight up a mountain, that's probably 10 or 15 kilometers a day, maybe five kilometers a day if it's really tough, which only happened once. Um, and then, you know, you kind of guesstimate around 10 days. The great thing is, is that you're up at a high altitude. There's water everywhere. You know, there's snow-capped mountains. So as long as you've got water, uh, you're going to be fine, so food-wise. But that's the, that's the whole thing. You, you know, you kind of prepare as much as you can in Shanghai or, or wherever you're based. And then once you get there, you've got local people, you know, the yak guys and everything, and they know how long it's going to take. And, of course, they do it much faster than you, and they size you up yeah, seven days. Yeah, we can do it in three, right? And, and that's part of their... They're, they're just setting the tone for the rest of the trip when they do that. Uh, and then... And then for photography, you know, you just bring a truckload of film. So you know, I was carrying hundreds of rolls of film, uh, and I was using film because film cameras, the batteries last forever. And the quality, in my mind, is still very high, maybe better, maybe not, who knows. But um, one, one battery in my Canon will last two weeks at high altitude, um, you know, in freezing cold weather, whereas digital cameras... Um, in the past, I've had the screens break at minus 25, and the batteries won't even last a day in that kind of weather. So I still use film cameras, uh, relied a lot on the local guides for food and distances, and, um, and brought a satellite phone so I could talk to my kids every now and then. So that was also really good. But at the end of the day, you can't really prepare that much, and you should never let that stop you from doing something you know, awesome or difficult, because you can over-prepare... Uh, and you can talk yourself out of things by thinking you're not prepared when at the end of the day you just kind of got to go out and do it. And as long as you have local help, you should be pretty okay. As long as you're not a chain-smoking uh, person who likes to drink a ton of alcohol, unless you're my friend, in which case I'll follow him. Um, thank you for that question. Anyone else? Uh, over there, yes, sir? Yeah. Yep. Yes, 
Hello there, my name is Johnny, and I have no affiliation apart from I was actually... Oh, speak up a bit. Yeah. Uh, apart from I was actually uh, Miss Young's former student. So how job you get? But I have a question about um, nomads. I've been to certain parts of Western China as well, bumped into nomadic and semi-nomadic communities, and it often got me thinking about, from a government perspective, uh, kind of policy, well, what do you do? Because these guys are so far behind the rest of China. This is a country with big cities like Shanghai and it's got some of the world's most tallest, bu- uh, tallest buildings, really developed places. And then a lot of these guys, they can't even speak Chinese. Uh, but then, you know, they don't... Also, when, when they've spent money on trying to kind of provide housing, etc., move them into towns, they don't do particularly well and also it's kind of a bit... Um, you know, imposing hand culture on these ethnic minorities. So I thought, um, I'm very confused on this sort of issue and I'd like to know your thoughts. So that's an incredibly interesting political question that's loaded in many ways. Uh, And any way I try to answer that would be very difficult, very confusing and lead to more difficult and confusing questions. Uh, The government is trying to keep track of nomads. They are trying to understand where they're going. They're trying to give them ID cards with their pictures on them and things like that. Uh, The government is trying to settle them in small semi-nomadic communities where they can kind of know where where they will be at certain times of the year at least. Those are all policies that are happening. I don't necessarily have an opinion on whether that's good, bad, or ugly, or beautiful, or whatever. Uh, But that's kind of what's happening on the ground. And you're right, a lot of these people don't speak um, any Chinese. A lot of them are illiterate, they don't read or write. Um, you know, there's no schools in, in a lot of these places, and they, they're completely detached from, from life in China and the wealth that's being created, uh, you know, in places like Shanghai and Beijing. That's an absolute fact. Uh, Tibetans, as well as people in other parts, you know, there's so many minority people in China uh, that live kind of just in far-flung places, in some of the most beautiful places. And uh, the policy of trying to bring them in and and making them feel part of of what's happening in China, I feel, is maybe a losing game. I think it's quite hard to do that. And I think that people who live out on the grasslands, they don't necessarily care about ID cards. Uh, They just kind of want to continue herding their yak and raising their children and to be left alone, really, the same way they have been uh, for, for centuries. But then there are people who kind of like being connected, and they like their mobile phones, and they have their bling, They've got their fancy phone with the fancy ring with a little thing, you know, dangling on the end. And they have motorcycles. You know, the new Tibetan horse is a motorcycle. So there are, there are people who are coming into the fringes of society and enjoying that and embracing it because it makes their life easier and they're accepting that. But there are people who are trying to stay away. Can you take the gentleman in the front, please? Yeah. Hello, Chris Mazur from Imperial College London. Uh, we, a few years ago, went into uh, Annapurna Basin in Nepal and filmed ourselves a documentary on how people live and without ele- with electricity and without electricity. Mm. Uh, our problem was at the beginning we needed to ask the tourist ministry what kind of to get a permit to film and so on. We still ended up with the Nepalese military pointing guns at us and so on. Uh, what do I have to take into account when I go to Nepal, in order, uh, not, well, uh, to Tibet, in order to film, and, or even as a tourist, or even with a proper production? What do I have to arrange, and uh, what do I have to take into account? So there's no way you'll be able to film in Tibet. There's no permits for that in any way, shape, or form. I mean, we filmed a little in Tibet here and there. You know, going into a place like Lhasa with a big shoulder camera, no way. I mean, maybe you can get away with a little 5D every now and then. Uh, to do some filming. But once you get out into the mountains, 
you know, there's nothing out there. There's no roads, there's no mobile phones, there's, there's no people asking you really for permits and things like that. And it's, and it's actually a very free place to work and film. And, and I think that, you know, I've lived in China for 15 years. The government knows exactly where I live. There might even be someone here from the Chinese consulate or embassy. You know, I'm, I'm a known quantity and, and people pretty much know that a lot of the work I do, and especially this project, is completely non-political. You know, I'm out there to experience these people's lives, um, to put myself through hell, and to try to understand a little bit about what makes these places so beautiful and why pilgrims want to go there. Um, you know, at no point was I, you know, filming and asking people, you know, potentially sensitive questions. And that's what people are just afraid of. So when you come in from a foreign country, uh, it can be qu quite a bit harder. And I think that's one of the things that I have a responsibility to do because I live in China, I understand how to work there, even in some of the most restrictive areas. And I have stories to tell, and I think I need to keep kind of telling those stories and keep sharing them with people, and hopefully, uh, you know, I can continue to live in China and continue to do that. But that's not entirely of my will. But so far, it's working out okay. But it's hard. Yeah. What do you think of the anthropomorphic qualities of mountains? Because in many Semitic uh, religions, mountains are given as uh, examples uh, all the time, like revelation of the Holy Script and also vibrancy like human uh, metabolism. I'm a Muslim person, and therefore I'm a little bit curious about what could be your approach about these manly qualities of uh, mountain and also is you know pilgrimage is another the common denominator uh, with other religions Islam and uh, Arafat for example and other mountains so sacred volcanoes are happening so also in Buddhism which is the case do you think which is an offshoot or you know uh, you know which is our automatic inclination towards uh, the nature ultimately like wanting to control nature about uh, yes, yes, but mountain is uh, exemplified uh, in Islam in many times, in many respects, and uh, so then, how would you approach, how would you... Uh, so I'm not too familiar with Islam. Um, I've been to some Islamic countries, and I've spent a lot of time in Xinjiang, in western China, but I really don't understand at all about how Islam connects with nature uh, in any way, shape, or form. I'm totally ignorant uh, of Islam, uh, so I don't know how I can answer that too much. But it's interesting. I'd, I'd love to spend more time. I actually made a book about Xinjiang, uh, a photography book, uh, where I tried to kind of get into, into Islam quite a bit, but I never made that connection with nature in the same way that Tibetans, um, because of their, their roots with the Bon religion, uh, have kind of developed with over time. Uh, next one. I think that we have one lady at the back. In the back. What was the general reaction of like, the Tibetan people and the nomads and the Buddhists that you met to you as a Westerner out on the pilgrimage as well? Well, there have been... It, what was the reaction? Um, I guess the first was a little surprise, but not necessarily surprise like, wow, we've never seen a white person before. It was more of a surprise of like, oh, you're pretty tough. You did that. Good for you. Uh, have some tea. You know, that kind of thing. Because obviously there have been a lot of, uh, you know, Westerners, Caucasian people trekking in these parts of the world for a long time. And, uh, you know, dating back, obviously, you know, even before Kingdon Ward and Joseph Rock made the regions quite famous. 
So people do end up in these places, and, and in this part of the world, you never necessarily have that moment where you meet someone and they've never seen a white person before. That's not, that's not this part of the world. Um, but the reaction was one of respect, because, you know, you don't do the holy mountain, you don't do the sacred mountain treks unless you, you know, are quite, uh, well, one is tough, but the other is interested. And I think that they would respect your effort to learn more about why those mountains are sacred. And that was really the connection that we had with a lot of people who we met along the way. It's like, oh, great, you're doing the trek around Kailash. We need to get more you know, foreigners doing the trek around Kailash so they can see how beautiful our mountains are. And you know, make sure you film it really well so you can share it with lots of people back home. Because you know, really, for them, the more the merrier. Because they they're so proud of their part of the world and, and, uh, because it is so beautiful. And they definitely want to share that with as many people as possible. So I got really great responses um, from everyone that I had a chance to meet along the way. Any? Yeah. Sorry. To keep it. Let's take this gentleman first, then we're going to move that way. On uh, one of your slides, I saw... Scream uh, right into it. One of your slides, I saw it said adventure on motorbikes kind of a thing. Can you tell me more about that? Adventure on motorbikes. Yes, I make a television show called Tough Rides. It's on Sky, and it's on Travel Channel. And I've made three of them. One is Tough Rides China, where I rode a motorcycle 19,000 kilometers around China. Another one's Tough Rides India, where I did a similar trip around India. Those are television shows. And I just came back from Brazil. I did those trips. That's the complete opposite of Extreme Trek. So the real excitement and the connection with nature and all these things, that, that's for the, what I talked about. Then I have a total other side of me uh, that loves riding motorcycles uh, and loves the roar of the engine uh, and this, the wind through my hair. Well, I got a helmet on, but you get it, right? So it's a totally different kind of... Yeah, you know, you, you, you can't go too far in one direction. So I have another, another show, and it's all online. You can check it out. Uh, it's really fun. And uh, again, the whole premise of that show is to explore that country, understand that country, uh, but to do it on two wheels. So let's just have two last quick questions. If anyone want to grab it. Okay, then the gentleman back. Hi, Ryan. Um, uh, as I was looking at your amazing photos, I was reflecting on my own trip to India where I met Tibetans who are living in exile in, in, exile in India. And I was reflecting on how starkly different they were. Um, the Tibetans that you took in your photos, I mean, they, they look so positive and so happy. And the Tibetans in India, um, a lot of them I meet are you know, very upset with their situation. I was just wondering if anyone, any of the Tibetans you, you met along the way has mentioned about how they feel about how you know, their spiritual leader have been in exile and, and why they look so positive about it and also your own reflections on it, I guess. Okay, so I didn't actually meet any Tibetan people who were doing the sacred mountains who lived outside of Tibet. So all of the people I came into contact with um, lived, lived in, the, in the physical borders of, of China. Uh, so they hadn't crossed borders, at least the Tibetan people. I met some Indian people who um, traveled from Nepal to Lhasa and then to Kailash, uh, but they were Indian Hindu pilgrims. So I didn't necessarily meet any uh, Tibetan people who uh, live in exile in India. And actually, I've spent a lot of time in India riding a motorcycle, and I actually never connected with any uh, Tibetan people in exile, so I can't comment on their happiness. 
But when I was doing the trips around the Sacred Mountains, yeah, all the people we met were really happy because they're doing the Sacred Mountain. It's Christmas, right? You know, they work hard in the field all summer. Uh, they, work, they work hard uh, with their animals and, and farming all summer so that in the fall they can go out and do these Sacred Mountains. And it's a bit of a manly thing to do. It's a, it's a, great, it's a, it's a thing of pride. I've done Kailash seven times. He's only done it three times. You know, like these are the conversations you have at night. They're drinking Baijo or whatever, and I'm just drinking you know, hot water with lemon and honey because I'm dehydrated. Uh, Baijo is like rice, alcohol, really nasty stuff in China. Uh, 55%, 60% proof. Burn the roof right off your mouth. Tibetan guys will drink that all night at 5,000 plus meters and be fine the next day. And uh, so they all seem kind of happy and cheerful. Also, my guys were drinking heavily because I was paying them. So once, once you get a paying job, uh, the first thing you do is you grab your donkey, put the white guy's bags on it, and then go out and buy a couple bottles to bring on the journey. So that was, there was a very celebratory mood um, at every mountain I went to, not only within my own team, but the people we met along the way. Okay, and then we've got one final quick, quick question. Anyone? Okay. Okay, the lady there. Quick, please. Hi, uh, what's season two going to be? Oh, it's a really good question. That's one of the reasons I'm in London. So um, it won't be mountains. It'll be something else. But I really love this idea of exploring extreme landscapes on foot. And I really love the idea of being um, immersed with beautiful places, both as a photographer and as a television uh, producer and presenter. So maybe it'll be something in the U.S. in a remote place. Maybe it'll be something in China again. So we're trying to figure that out, and hopefully I can start it uh, early next year. So follow me on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, one of those social media things, Ryan Pyle, at Ryan Pyle. It's all at Ryan Pyle. And uh, I'll obviously keep everyone updated about that. Thank you very much. Yes, thank, thank you, LSE, for tonight. Uh, thank you.